turned on the back side there, you'll see that we continuing in our working through the Gospel of Luke on Wednesday afternoons, and we find ourselves about midway through the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and we take up the narrative there in verse 13. Give ear to God's Word as we hear it spoken to us today. It reads, Someone in the crowd said to him, that is to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I think that this verse begins a, an entirely new section for us in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 12 here. It is the opening of a discourse which seems to continue for the next 40 verses at least, if not beyond that. So taking up much of what is chapter 12 of the Gospel of Luke. And in this discourse, I think that we can see Jesus expounding upon uh, the general theme of our relationship to the world in light of who He is. That is, in light of the person and work of Christ, we relate to the world in a particular way. And so in the next four weeks, God willing, we'll, we'll actually expound Alex and I upon that general theme as the Scripture opens it up to us in the verses that follow. What, what is surprising, though, however, is that this discourse that is opened up and is filled with the speech of Jesus is not begun by Jesus Himself. He doesn't initiate the discourse. Instead, it begins by a, the, what almost comes as the interruption of a man, an unnamed man, who solicits a request from the Lord. And you see that there at the beginning of our passage in verse 13. We read, Someone, an unnamed man in the crowd, said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And this request, this request for him to divide his inheritance, is not in itself evil. There's actually... In fact, nothing wrong with it at all. Such dividing of the inheritance was something that was considered normal practice for a rabbi of that time to do for his people. When they had trouble with the inheritance, the law of Moses had some things to say about it. And the rabbi, knowing what the law said, could rightly divide between um, brothers in, in their inheritance. And so I think it's important that as we hear him say this, knowing what's coming, that we don't immediately understand what he says in light of the warning at first. We cannot just assume that he asks his question with some ulterior motive that is in itself wrong or to be disapproved of. 
Instead, I think what we hear here and what we're meant to hear is just a man coming with a sincere request that any man could ask of any rabbi. He he approaches Jesus like he calls him as a teacher among other teachers, as a rabbi among other rabbis, and asks him to do what rabbis do. In that sense, he comes to him as we might come to a, a, a lawyer who is going over the estate of a deceased relative, or as we might even approach a real estate lawyer, or a, a financial advisor, or even a life coach. When we act like this, though, in relation to him, that is, to Jesus, we see, see him, as this man, I think, does, as a means to a worldly or a profane end. And seeing him as such, I think that we don't see him at all. And I think that that's true of this man. He fails to actually see Jesus. And we do the, we do the same when we want Jesus to step into our world and judge and parse the things out that are our possessions in this world as an end in themselves. We want him, as the man does here, to tell us, to tell those around us what to do, to straighten things out, to make things right, to tell my brother, to tell my sister, to tell my boss or my government, my president, my mayor, the guy in the car in front of me. Tell him, tell them all what to do. Tell them, Jesus. And I think Jesus, when he encounters such desires expressed either outwardly or in our hearts, in us, would meet us with the same question that he does with this man. Notice it in verse 14. He says, man, using the all-inclusive anthropos, if he was talking to an Old Testament Israelite in Hebrew, he would say, Adam, Adam, what do you, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Who made me the judge or arbitrator over you? And with these words, he puts into question the man's request itself, does he not? He lets him know that he is not here to do what this man thinks he's here to do. Jesus has not come to judge and divide the inheritance in the way that this man thinks that he's here to do it. He requests it of him, but Jesus meets him with the question. And with the question then, we might say that he puts this man, as we use the expression, in his proper place. He calls him to consider not only that he's wrong in what he asks, but I think at the same time, having asked this question and put, it, put the man in his proper place, he then calls him to consider in the question something more. His question serves to draw the man that has come out of the crowd to ask this request, and, and all of us for that matter, into something deeper that is set in front of him. He calls him to ponder, that is, to ponder him, Jesus, whose person and work his person and work, by turning our attentions, his attentions, to the one who made or appointed him as judge and arbitrator. If we would listen to Jesus, and if we would continue in his word, then we must hear him ask this question about the one who sent him, the one who made him, the one who appointed him. He inquires of us whether or not, with this question, whether or not we know that one. Do we, do we, do you and I know who it was that sent Jesus, who appointed him, who makes him what all that he is in his office and work in this world? Do we know God, the Father, 
is what's behind this question. It's not unlike the man who comes to him and says, good teacher, good teacher, what do I have to do for eternal life? And he says, there's none good but God. There's a question in that. There's a call in the, to the man to consider more deeply who he is approaching and what he's asking. And I think that's what's happening here. And he does this. He asks, because our desire for Jesus to be judge and arbitrator in our affairs, like this man, hints at a lack of that very knowledge in us. When we ask Jesus to be the judge and arbitrator in the affairs of this life for, as an end in themselves, we are demonstrating, in some sense, that we've misunderstood who He is and from whom He has been sent. Perhaps we have not and do not know Him as we should. For if we did, we would know the one who made Him judge and arbitrator. And that is why I think Jesus goes on to warn us, even as He warns this man. And the warning, I think, is, comes to us as a, a, something like a slap on the cheek or uh, smelling salts to awaken us to a reality that we've, we've grown numb to. The NIV, I think, captures it best when it translates the warning of verse 15 with an excla exclamation. It says literally, watch out, exclamation point. Be on your guard. This is the nature of what Jesus is saying. Look out. Be on guard against this. You see, He would awaken us and this man to a grave danger. And notice he names that danger for us. He says, take care, be on your guard against, he says, all, all covetousness. Covetousness, which he here then describes as the abundance of possessions. It's sometimes translated greed. And in both cases, it communicates to our ears, I think, having too much of something, does it not? We think that we are called to avoid having too much. We hear the warning, we say, oh, I better watch out about having too much. And perhaps we even go home and look over our stuff with a little bit of a worry. The house is too big. The closets are too full. The drawers are too stuffed with clothes. And we feel a bit convicted. And while that worry may have its place, perhaps we do have too much in those places. There is such a thing as greed. There is such a thing as gluttony in the heart of fallen men. Yet at the same time, if we stop there and limit the words of Jesus just to that, the acquisition of things, the, the piling up of things, I think we miss the point of the passage. If we think that he's just calling us to go home and get rid of stuff, then we miss what he's saying. In fact, I think we even fall into the very trap that the man himself from the crowd has fallen into. We make Jesus the arbitrator and the judge of our stuff and miss the all-important life that is noted here, one's life. The important point that Jesus said, take care, be on your guard, for one's life, he says, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's what he's after. That's the primary thing, your life. It's your life, and it's not hidden in the acquisition of stuff, nor is it in the purging yourself of the stuff. That's not where your life is. Not at all. Your life, according to Colossians 3.3, is hidden with Christ in God. That's what God's Word says to us. And to focus on the stuff, no matter how religious its significance, no matter how important and practical it may seem to us, is to miss both Jesus and the one who made Him judge and arbitrator over us. 
as we read elsewhere, our life, our true life, consists in this, to know the only true God, John writes, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Jesus, then, according to the sending of his Father, is judge and arbitrator, yes, but in this case, of life itself, true life, and its source and place. The Apostle Paul, I think, was made keenly aware of this in his own personal life. You'll remember that he describes his coming under conviction of sin to us in his letter to the Romans in chapter 7. He writes, I would not have known sin if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You see, Paul at that time, I think we can be pretty sure, was not a rich man. He did not own great things, at least not to our knowledge, but he did pile something up, didn't Paul? Something that is of this world. He lists his possessions for us in another place. Circumcised, he says, on the eighth day. On the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he says, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Look at all his possessions in which he sets his trust as Saul before he becomes Paul. He possessed an abundance, and in that way. And it was to that man, with those riches, that the law came, and the law said, you shall not covet. And it was that word that brought him under the conviction of sin, that word which slew him, and he who was slain by the law was made alive in the reception of Jesus Christ as Lord. And I think that that understanding that walking through the text in that way and thinking of covetous from that perspective helps us to better define the nature of the warning that is set before us in this text this afternoon it's not simply a warning against having a desire for abundance it is instead i think the seeking to fulfill that desire a desire for abundance in the wrong place and by the wrong means God in the Scripture tells us that He's already set eternity into our hearts. We have a big yearning within us, a large capacity, a hunger that needs to be filled up with something that is without measure. We have an insatiable yearning, we might say, and we covet and are covetous when we seek to fill that with anything other than the one for whom it is meant to, or by whom it's meant to be filled, that is, by God Himself. And so Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, that covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness, he says, which is idolatry. It is covetousness at its heart, a disordered worship. It is, to put it plainly, to not know God or have communion with Him, and then to turn and find instead of him a replacement for him in worldly things, to seek life apart from him who gave life, but instead in things around us. It is, in, a, in another way to say it, to live like practical atheists. We might have all the confession right, but in our actual practical everyday lives, we live as though God is not there. And I think that's the nature of the man in the parable that follows this opening of our passage. Notice how he's described in verse 16 there. It says that he was a rich man. He had a lot of things. The earth, this present world, had given him much, as Jesus describes it there. He says the land produced for him plentifully. 
He had plenty. And then we are given a glimpse into the dialogue of this man as he beholds his plenty, as he, as he understands and evaluates this abundance that is his. Beginning in verse 18, you can read there with me if you'd like. He says, and he said, I will do this. Looking again at his abundance, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now notice, it doesn't really describe an insatiable desire for more and more gain, does it? You don't get the picture of a man ravenous, foaming at the mouth for profit and and big treasures. That's not what is set before us. In many ways, I think he demonstrates a sort of economic prudency, does he not? Skill and good judgment in the use of his resources. The problem for the man, you see, is that it's not of this world. His problem is not this world. This world would commend him. The problem, of course, is that this world is not all that there is. And there is more to it than meets the eye. Yet he lives in it, in this world, as an end in itself. And that way of living it is, a, is epitomized in the dialogue that I just read again. As I count them, there are eight different times that personal pronouns are used in just two verses. And all of them are first person. It's all I and me and mine. The man, you see... He's deeply focused on himself. It is a man living for man. A creature living for created things. A closed and dead system curved in upon itself. I think this is famously the problem of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea which sits as something of a perennial parable in the land of Israel. Do you know why it's called dead? Well, it's called dead because nothing lives in it, of course. There are no fish. There are no plants in the Dead Sea. And this is caused by a very high salinity content in the water. You've probably seen pictures of people floating in the Dead Sea and reading newspapers and such. And that's because the water is so dense with salt that they can float. And the reason why it has so much salt is because water flows into it, but it does not flow out. It stays there. The man in the parable, you see, is like the Dead Sea. Much comes in, but nothing flows out. All of it is for, through, to, and and in Him. The water comes in, it stops, it stagnates, it evaporates into the air, and leaves behind it nothing but deposits of salt and emptiness and death. This being His state, you see, the man is given by a loving God a sharp, sobering word. And again, it comes to him as a question as Jesus to the man who stepped out of the crowd. But God said to him, fool, fool. He names him, doesn't he? He gives him the name fool. And what a horrible name to be given by God. To be called what Nabal, you remember him from the Old Testament, was called. Because Nabal, who had an abundance of his fields, when David came asking for a piece of that abundance said, who is David that I should give him that which is mine? My crops, my fields, my wages. I'm not giving it to him. They're mine. And he is a fool. God himself 
pronounces that name over this man. It's the last word spoken about his life. The final judgment declared over all of this man's life is fool. He's a fool. It's the divine summary of the whole. And what a terrible thing to hear such a word spoken over our lives. To be grouped with those who say in their heart that there is no God. We might demonstrate it with our actions like this man in small pockets. And what a horrible thing. And so Jesus warns us. And notice it is the very mouth of the one that we would deny who says it to us. You fool. He warns us against such folly. Don't be fools. This night, he continues on, your soul is required of you. The man, this foolish man, thinks that his soul is his own, my soul. It's mine. It's my life. But in a moment, in an instant, without him knowing it, God comes to claim what is actually not his, but is rightfully the one who gave it. He gave, and he comes to get it back. He whom you denied returns from you, or requ- returns to require from you the very substance of your being, your soul. And then what's left? And the things you have prepared, those big barns, all that grain, the plans, the future years that you saw coming down the pipe, the ease, whose, he says, will they be? In my opinion, It's a question that has only two answers. Simply, it's God and others. Whose will they be? Oh, well, they will be God's. And they will be others. The things which he meant to keep for himself, the works of his hands, the fruit of his labor, it was all meant for God. God gave it. And God intended it for it to be a means whereby this man might know him as God. The sun, the rain, the soil, the very life in his bones, the fruitful harvest, the taste of that goodness of the earth, all of it was meant to be a communication of God to him as the creator to the creature man. He and we are meant to come to know God through the creation, to know him as the creator and we as his creatures. Isn't that the case? All of creation declares his glory. We're meant to learn from the created world that he is our provider. And that we are the ones to whom and for whom He provides. He is generous beyond measure, ever giving. He communicates to us by the things He has made that He's not only Creator and He's not only a provider, but also He is a Savior. And we are His sinners, or the ones He saves, the sinners He saves. You see, we eat, do we not, on a regular basis from the creation, bread, We drink from the fruit of the vine, the cup, and we know that He has freely sent His Son, given His Son, to save us from our sins. He has given creation, you see. Not for us, as Jesus says in verse 21, to lay up treasure for ourselves, but in order that through it we might be rich toward God. Rich toward God. And what greater treasure is there What greater riches are there than to be able to say, I know Him. I know Him as my Father. I know Him as my Creator. I know Him as my Provider. I know Him as my Savior and my Lord. And He it is who takes care of me. And all these things are but gifts from His hand. They declare it to me day after day and night after night. And knowing Him, 
we know a generous giver and are thus led through contemplation of him and his goodness and generosity in the created things to use those same created things to communicate him and his generosity to others. You see, God and others. That's what the possessions were for from the very beginning. What are they for? What are they left for? They're left for what they were meant for from the very beginning. Augustine tells us that the bellies of the poor are safer storerooms than our barns. And he's right. And he's trying to encourage us by those words that the things that we ought to do to store up our goods are the very acts that show the generosity of God, that display His goodness and His grace. Whatever it is, whether it's giving of our goods, giving of our ideas, giving of our time, giving of our families, giving of our food, all these things are a means to show forth the God who first gave to us. And so with these words, you see, Jesus corrects our tendency, which is so inherent in us, toward covetousness. We learn to live for him and for others as he teaches us. Yes, we can even, hearing these words and being transformed by them, confess that all that I have and all that I am is for God and for my neighbor. And thus, we fulfill the law, do we not? To love God and to love our neighbor. God the Father has appointed his son, you see, both judge and arbitrator to this very end, that we might judge properly who we are and what our life is and divide properly this world in which we live to display his glory to all who will come and see it. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have awakened us yet again to your will for our lives and its simplicity and that you call us to go forth and to walk in these truths. Lord, we pray in your mercy that you would, by your word and through the power of your spirit, so grant us grace and energy to labor for you in this world as a light and a testimony to you, the God who made us and takes care of us and has redeemed us from our sins. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.